This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden. My guest today is Adam Brotman. Adam was the former chief digital officer of Starbucks, where he built out their immensely successful rewards program and digital platform. Today, he is the co-CEO of Forum3, and he recently helped Starbucks design their new Web3 experience called Starbucks Odyssey. In our conversation, we discuss how consumer loyalty programs are a quid pro quo why NFTs are great engagement tools for brand marketers, and why digital collectibles should be decentralized. Please enjoy this conversation with Adam Brotman. Adam, I feel really lucky that I got to meet you through crypto and NFTs. It's kind of how I've gotten very lucky to meet some really interesting people. Before we dive into NFTs and some of your views, which I think are absolutely fascinating, your career as chief digital officer of Starbucks, you know, J. Crew, you've done a lot of amazing things before you took on the world of NFTs. So maybe give the audience kind of a background sketch of your early career in digital at Starbucks. I started at Starbucks in the very end of 2008, beginning of 2009, as an individual contributor, vice president of digital, brought on by Howard Schultz and Stephen Gillette, who was the CIO at the time. The idea and the ask of me was help write a digital strategy for the company. And so we spent the good part of the first year doing a lot of whiteboarding, a lot of observing, a lot of learning, and you know, ultimately kind of wrote out a strategy that described a digital ecosystem that involved a mobile app, involved payment, involved loyalty, involved ordering. We just set about spending 10 years building that. It was a lot of hard work, amazing teams. I had the privilege of being chief digital officer there until 2018 and then left. When Howard left for the second time, I left and took on my little mini career at J. Crew in New York. I guess taking us back to 2008, what was the acceptance like back then of thinking about, you know, moving to digital? Starbucks was a successful company. Was this a radical idea? Was this an obvious idea? What were the challenges? There were a couple of things going on at the same time. If you take yourself back to the end of 2008, beginning of 2009, the Great Recession was happening. Starbucks was not immune from that at all. Starbucks stock was way down. The sales were negative comping. The country and the company were both suffering from the economic meltdown. And Howard Schultz had come back for a second tour of duty. He brought a guy named Stephen Gillette, who I had worked with previously at the Bill Gates company, Corbis. And Stephen Gillette and Howard were like, look, let's build something special here using digital. The company really hadn't done anything in that regard up until that point, like a lot of brands. And 
there was a willingness to experiment. There was a willingness to be entrepreneurial. And that really came from, you know, Howard and Stephen, both of them. And they were encouraging me to think about things from the perspective of what would Silicon Valley do? They didn't say that to me. I literally was like, okay, I'm going to go study Silicon Valley. What's going on there? And why do we have to be a tech company to act like that? So that was sort of the thinking at the time was, I went to school on Starbucks, I went to school on Silicon Valley, and you know, we ultimately wrote the strategy and implemented it. Were there inspirations back then you looked to to say like, this was like a guiding principle of what you think it might look like? I was really interested in what Jack Dorsey was doing at Square and Twitter. This was still when Steve Jobs was still alive. And I was really fascinated with everything he was doing at Apple. And then in our own backyard in Seattle, we had Jeff Bezos and Amazon. At this time, Google was still, and it still is, but Google was just this amazing platform that was worth studying. So what they all had in common is that they were all platforms. So Amazon, Square, Google, and Apple, they were all platforms, even Microsoft to some extent. I was trying to think of like, how do we think about Starbucks' digital relationship with its customers as a platform and to think about all of the network effects and flywheel effects that could happen if you build a platform. To be honest, I was inspired by the world's leading digital platforms and was doing my best to say, could Starbucks build a digital platform as well? And what was the relationship with Howard on this? Of like, From a visionary standpoint, it was 2008, so the economy struggling, everyone's doing bad. Everyone wanted to be a platform company. Everybody wants to be a tech platform, but it's a coffee company. So what was like the vision at the top in your relationship there to decide, like, was this an obvious, let's go in this direction? This would not have happened at Starbucks without Howard. He wasn't actually contributing to the details of, oh, you should do an iOS app and you should connect the loyalty program to it. The actual user experience, features, benefits, design. He wasn't involved in, although of course we would preview it and get his approval on it. As you could imagine, any kind of founder CEO, that's how it works. But it would not have happened without his combination of having an instinct that Starbucks should and could do something with digital that would be experiential and would both benefit the customer experience and benefit the business. So he had that instinct and put me and our teams in the position to succeed. And then he supported us so that we could have truly the impact we wanted to have to have transformative change. Because there were like a lot of times where the business would be like, wait, you're going to give a discount. People are going to pay with their phones. People are going to order ahead and skip the line. Oh my God, you're going to break the democratization of the line. Like The first thing we did, actually, you're going to laugh. The first thing we did was free Wi-Fi. You got to remember Starbucks was one of the pioneering brands that offered free Wi-Fi in its yeah. locations. And it was like the first thing that I did when I was there was work on implementing free Wi-Fi. And then we built this content network on the back of the authentication page, the landing page. And even that wasn't without its controversy because people were like, wait, people are just going to hang out all day. You're never going to be able to get a table. And I'm not mocking the voices. They were legitimate concerns. But without Howard having the courage and the vision to realize like, no, we need to be entrepreneurial let Adam and Steven and the team do what they need to do. Once it starts to catch on and the customers loved it and was driving the business, then everybody was on board and helping. It took that 
executive sponsorship to make it happen. It wasn't just our teams were so brilliant. I mean, we had great teams, but you have to have the combination of the idea, the vision, and the support for being entrepreneurial from the top. I love that story about giving away free Wi-Fi because I think that I can put myself in the other people's positions. Like we're trying to sell coffee and do as much volume as we can. And now you're going to you're like loaf around, not buy our products. Are there examples of as you were going through that cycle when you were hitting those roadblocks for the business versus digital, where you were like, I think this is a good idea, but this is pushing the edge of what digital could be? Every time. Everything we ever did, my stomach was in knots because I mean, Starbucks. It was bigger now than it was 10 years ago or 14 years ago when I first started. But it was pretty big. When I was there, it was 10,000 US locations and $10 billion plus in sales and definitely hundreds of millions of transactions a month. There wasn't anywhere to hide if you screwed up. My stomach was in knots every time we did anything. There wasn't an example of like, oh yeah, this one was so easy and obvious it was a lot of incrementally pushing the boundaries. But we had certain like ground truths and North Stars that were like, look, we're going to build this with a customer in mind. We're going to always put ourselves in the customer's shoes. Like, is this improving the customer experience? I'm not some trained product person. I just build stuff that I want to use. I am a great Starbucks customer. Before, during, and after my time at Starbucks, I bleed Starbucks. I love Starbucks. I could really put myself in the shoes of what I thought customers would appreciate from a digital perspective, that is. For my wife, that app, like when I went to go to a Starbucks, I didn't use her app or get her points. Like it caused a visual reaction in diehard Starbucks people. Like this app to me and finding out you were the guy that was behind it, I just thought was, I told my wife, I'm like, I'm going to meet the guy who made that. She's like, this is the most important invention ever. Oh man, yeah, you're making my day. We had a great team that built that app and Starbucks app, Overall, today, mobile order and pay is over a quarter of all transactions. But if you think about reloads, scanning for payment, using the app for loyalty, it's incredible. It's like half their business goes to that app now. Talk to me about how you tripped into the crypto side. What was your first experience with getting into crypto? My longtime best friend, Andy Sack, and I were talking about what he was going to do next. And this was at the very end of 2020. He's been a successful entrepreneur, Andy Sack. He had multiple successful exits and entrepreneur experiences. And he switched sides and became a venture capitalist. And he's become a very successful seed series A stage venture capitalist with Founders Co-op and Techstars. And when he told me that his next thing he was going to do was going to be to create a venture capital fund of funds in the blockchain space, in the Web3 space, called Keen Capital. And it was going to be focused on making investments into venture funds that focused on Web3 and blockchain. This was at the end of 2020, beginning of 2021. At this point, I had left J.Crew and I was the CEO of Brightloom, which is a company that uses data analytics and models to help brands with their go-to-market strategies and go-to-market implementation. And so I was working at Brightloom it's like the height of the pandemic. And Andy's saying he's going to do this. And he says, I would like you to be a special limited partner. And he'd been in crypto since 2015. And he's like, look, I'm telling you, Web3, it's still super early, but this is going to be a big deal. I want to get exposure for LPs in the most diversified way to this sector generally. So I want to invest in venture funds, which will be the best 
most diversified way to do this. So would you invest and would you be a special limited partner? But remember, he's my dearest friend and he had been in crypto since 2015, 2016, and he'd been trying to red pill me and I kept not doing it. And then he was like, it's time for you to get red pilled. It's time for you to like learn. And this will be a great excuse. So I said, okay. And I became a investor and a special limited partner. So I went down my journey. I love to learn and I love to just soak up anything I'm interested in. I was fascinated as I started to learn about Bitcoin. I think there's like a proper curriculum. You got to become a Bitcoin maxi for like a month or two and then listen to Michael Saylor, read Bitcoin Standard, understand how Satoshi's white paper worked, understand how Bitcoin works. Now, for me, I just kept going with my learning journey and started reading about Ethereum. And then from there, you're like trying to figure out what are the use cases of Ethereum? And you start to learn about DeFi and Web3 generally. And it was in that part of the journey. So now we're talking like February of 2021. I started to study NFTs and I was blown away. I was like, oh my God, this I get. This is a digital asset that can have branding, storytelling, and metadata, but it also is programmable. It doubles as an access pass. So you can build utility into this branded ownable digital asset. That's an amazing thing. I called Andy and I was like, do you know about these NFTs? And he was like, not really. Like, of course, he's been in crypto since 2016 or whatever. So he's heard of NFTs, probably crypto punks. And you know, you can't be in crypto and not hear of them, but they weren't like a hot big thing yet. So he was like, tell me more about what you're learning about NFTs. And I'm like, here's what I'm learning. This is how they work. And there's this thing called Top Shot. There's Zed Run. Nifty Gateway, OpenSea. This is interesting. And at that point, there wasn't a ton of utility. I mean, in fact, if you think about it, Zed Run had a ton of utility on their NFTs. They're pure utility, like entertainment. You can race these things, you can breed them. It was kind of amazing. I don't think people talk about Zed Run enough to this day. We were both high fiving each other about that and that we had come across this thing. And I immediately started saying, okay, this is going to be great for brands. If you are a super fan of a brand and you want to have a more immersive, interesting relationship with the brand, like having the ability to collect these programmable trading cards, game pieces, rewards, whatever you want to make them, that would be a really cool thing for me as a brand fan. And as a brand marketer, what a great engagement tool. So right away, like March, April, May of 2021, Beeple sells his 5,000 days for 69 million, Board Apes, Mint, a bunch of people go from Top Shot into the Ethereum ecosystem. We're like, wow, this is amazing. So we decide as we get into the summer of 2021 to actually create a separate company that was an operational company. The thing we've been working on was an investment fund. So we decided to create an operational company called Forum 3 together. And the idea of that was, let's go help brands go implement this. Let's rope our shirt sleeves and become an operating company. We were just doing it on the side at the time. And then when Howard came back for his third stint as CEO, he was like, tell me what you and Andy are doing at Form 3. And I explained it to him. I said, I think this would be amazing for brands. And he's like, I agree. And as I said before, he's one of the best marketers you'll ever meet in your life. He's like greatest of all time in some ways. So he has a natural instinct for it. the storytelling, the engagement, the collectability, the fact that it can double as an access pass. He's like, why don't you and Andy and Form 3 help Starbucks figure out what the right Web3 strategy should be? And that's been the birth of my entry into the space. 
there's a lot of exciting things of what obviously has happened since that infamous phone call. There's something you've told me before that I absolutely love about how consumer brand loyalty is like a quid pro quo. Can you go into that example of what that means? The quid pro quo is that the brand is giving utility in the form of convenience and rewards. And the customer's reciprocating by giving frequency. That's really what's happening. So convenience can be a lot of different things. It can be a mobile app that has you auto-logged in, that remembers your favorite things, that allows you to order ahead, get delivery, get special access to things. That's convenience. Rewards, obviously, is discounts on some level or points that turn into discounts and coupons. But it could also be free shipping, free two-day shipping or free shipping. Think about Amazon Prime, for example. Is that like a lost leader? Do they think like, oh, this customer was going to come one time, but now that we've given them this discount, now they're going to come five times? Like, How do you tune the economics of a loyalty program? So what you're describing is this concept that loyalty marketers will call incrementality. How do you measure the incrementality and the ROI, frankly, of the discount you're giving? If I'm Starbucks and I'm giving a billion dollars a year in discounts, I better believe that the ROI on that billion dollars is two, three, four billion dollars. It's no different than buying advertising. So absolutely, when you're setting up a loyalty program, one of the first things you got to do is think about the economic and programmatics of incrementality around what we just discussed. So take Amazon Prime. I don't know their economics because I'm not privy to it, but you got to imagine they're giving away free shipping amongst other things, free movies and free streaming and a bunch of things. And there's a cost to that. And then they're able to measure fairly precisely how much more often even their best customers, let alone their sort of medium customers, are going to come because they've given that discount. They've made that investment. That's sort of the ROI or the incrementality analysis that you want to do. And it's no different than anything else. It's a loss leader in the sense that you're making an investment into it. You're not getting an instant payback the same day necessarily, but over time, like any good loss leader, it has the same effect, which is that you're going to have a long-term return on that investment. Bringing those worlds together, designing a proper loyalty program and one of the most successful, and now this idea of programmable NFTs, how did you see those worlds coming together? What were some of your first early thoughts? It was literally what you just said, I'm a believer now, which sounds kind of funny coming from me, given my experience in my career. I actually feel like consumer brand loyalty has become very stale. I actually think it's become very linear. It's become all about coupons. I think that the convenience utility has become table stakes now. If you don't give somebody the ability to order ahead, if you don't give somebody a mobile app, if you don't give somebody some level of rewards for being a frequent customer, to be honest, you're going to lose business. You almost need it as table stakes just to be in the game. And as a result, I think it's become not very differentiated. And I also think that the consumer has changed. The consumer not only expects it, but particularly the millennial and Gen Z consumer wants to have more of a participatory relationship, I think, with the brand that they love. They don't want to just have it be transactional. But I just described to you that quid pro quo is very transactional. And so you give me these things, I'll come more often. And the things you're giving me are discounts for the most part and some pretty basic convenience features. And so I felt for a couple of years now that brands and consumers both are looking for what's next. 
when I saw this idea of a digital collectible that could have rarity, storytelling, brand building built into it, that's ownable by the consumer, but also could be imbued with a bunch of programmed utility, that to me felt like one of the coolest rewards you could ever give a customer. Almost like a piece of digital merchandise that you can produce and it has these special powers and it's also covetable intrinsically because it's got this collectability built into it if you care about the brand. That's a lot more interesting to me than a 7% discount. That immediately with my thought was, oh yeah. It's funny, back in the summer of 2021, I wrote a little Jerry Maguire type memo to the, at that time, the CEO of Starbucks. I said to him, I said, if I was still CEO of Starbucks, I would set up an auxiliary or augmented loyalty layer gamified using digital collectibles with utility. And I would start experimenting with it because I feel like this is really interesting. I had no idea, by the way, that NFTs were going to become like a speculative thing. I wasn't interested in the speculative nature of the digital collectible at the beginning of my journey, nor am I now like defeated or fatigued by the fact that the prices are down because it's not about the price. It's about the emotional connection that you can have. I mean, I used to collect things when I was a kid. I think we all did on some level, like stickers or stuffies or baseball cards. You know, and as adults, people collect art or they collect other things. And so it's the collectability combined with the utility that's so interesting to me. And by the way, if you own it and it's a collectible, then it's going to have some market value that can go up or down. That's part of making it a collectible, but it's secondary. That's not the tail that should wag the dog. Yeah, I definitely think it's a very good point that when people talk about NFTs in particular, I think it was a net that caught a lot of curious, interesting people for a lot of different reasons. Whether like you're playing Zed Run, I remember explaining that to my father who gets it, he wants to know what I'm into. He's like, oh, I get it. Like it's a digital horse and you can race it. That's so cool. Like horse racing is so tired and old. Why not try this new version of it? It was just a tangible thing that people got. Whereas like DeFi in your curriculum, go Bitcoin, then you go Ethereum, then you go DeFi. Usually that's like scam, crazy, complex, difficult, hard. But then when NFTs showed up, they were very tangible and easy to kind of understand. I guess I'm curious at this point in the story, you're off the sidelines, but you're giving ideas. What was the earlier reaction to, hey, you guys should try NFTs or an augmented royalty program? When Starbucks initially was like, that's actually interesting. But then, like I said earlier, it takes an amazing amount of power and courage and willingness to fail and willingness to sort of be entrepreneurial to do something like Starbucks Odyssey. That's, again, a testament to Howard coming back and being the leader that he is. Also, the team at Starbucks, Brady Brewer, the CMO, and Kendra and Ryan, there's leaders at Starbucks that have that DNA. It definitely was Howard coming back saying like, what are you up to? Can you work with the team? And then the team was amazing and they took it. And now we have Odyssey on the way. So talk to me about Starbucks Odyssey, how the formation of Odyssey came and what your vision for it are. I don't want to speak for Starbucks unless they ask me to. Let's talk about what's out there. Starbucks has said that Odyssey will be for its rewards members. It'll be a web app to start. You'll go to this web app and you'll log in with your Starbucks rewards credentials and you'll play this game. The purpose of the game is to get as many Odyssey points as you can and level up because you're going to get these fun, exclusive things because you were part of the game and you leveled up and you get these perks. And it's different than 
we just talked about like the Starbucks loyalty program, its core loyalty program, which is done incredibly well and continues to be is a kind of a game. It's kind of a spend to earn discounts game that works really well. And it's got this convenience quid pro quo that we talked about built into it. So that's not going anywhere. And then you basically have this layer on top of this is if you're playing that game, if you're a member of that loyalty program, now you can participate in this other thing that lets you earn points and get other kinds of rewards and other kinds of perks. And they're going to be more experiential and they're going to be more unique. And then you're going to go to this platform and Odyssey is going to present you with these journeys. And these journeys are going to be brand positive and fun and the kind of thing that you would expect for Starbucks to want. You know, It could be anything from some transactional thing, like visit a Starbucks you've never been to or do something like fun around buying or visiting. But it could actually have nothing to do with that. It could be like, come visit some cool thing online or whatever. So Starbucks gets the opportunity to program a set of brand positive experiences and then reward the consumer for partaking in that. And they get these free journey stamps. And everything that you're doing, you're sort of getting points and then the stamps contain points in the metadata. And then there's going to be a built-in marketplace. It's all going to be hosted experience. So you don't have to have a sovereign crypto wallet. But if you do, you'll be able to do this external connect. It's meant to be a cool bridge to something in terms of self-custody, which is obviously a very important concept. But for most people, it's a little bit complicated to think about self-custody right out of the gate. So there's going to be this hosted experience powered by Nifty Gateway. All of the stamps are going to be built on the Polygon blockchain. So you got Polygon, you got Nifty, you got the Starbucks teams. That's all in the public domain. There's a lot more to it that's coming. This is just what you're going to see coming up here when it launches is just the beginning. When they're thinking about the customer base, is something like this, and I know it could be all of the above, but I'm trying to think of like, what's the Starbucks customer they're thinking about? Are they thinking about the person that might have a rewards program, but this is a fun way to draw them in? And I'm thinking about like how when McDonald's does that game, because I think with Forum 3, we can talk about a lot of brands. That was always interesting to me that they would create this game and people get all excited in this seasonal way, but then it would kind of go away. It was over. But it got people really excited to show up at McDonald's that maybe they weren't going to go, but now they're playing a game and get a free thing. If McDonald's is listening to your podcast, I'd love for them to be inspired because McDonald's Monopoly is a great game. And Starbucks has an even better game, in my opinion, called Starbucks for Life. Every December, if you use your Starbucks app to buy coffee at Starbucks locations, you get this sticker that shows up on this little web app. And depending on which stickers you get, you can win Starbucks for life, Starbucks for a month, Starbucks for a week. And it's this super fun, seasonal, brand-forward game that they get millions of people playing every December. But then when January comes, poof, it goes away. And then next December or whatever, they do some summer games well. And so to be honest, Starbucks for Life, the game, and McDonald's Monopoly were on my mind in that summer of 2021 when I was writing the Jerry Maguire memos and thinking about what was possible here because I was like, how fun would it be if you could play Starbucks for Life, but the stickers don't go away? In fact, those stickers are called stamps, which is interesting because now you got stamps in Odyssey. And Starbucks also has a history of stamps as being a thing that you would put in your coffee passport that they've had for years. So there's fun brand storytelling you can do, but why should it have to go away? A sticker is like a badge and a badge is not something that you own. It's not a collectible. Why can't you have all the fun of these games in brand immersive engagement activations, but why do they have to go away? 
I'm sure you've got this question before, but if someone approached you and said, why do we need to do the blockchain for this? I'm sure Starbucks has a huge tech budget. Let's build a database. We have their emails, their cell phones. We've got all this identifying data. Why don't we just do this on a centrally hosted database at Starbucks? There's a couple of reasons why, in my opinion, and they're fundamental. Everything I describe, I think is going to be very interesting for the consumer and very powerful for the brand centers on this idea that it is a digital collectible that also doubles as an access pass with utility. For something to be collectible, it has to be ownable. I've never heard of a collectible that you can't own. In fact, it's even better if it's possessable. So if you're talking about a digital asset that is ownable and possessable, I personally don't know any other way to do that than on a blockchain. I've never heard of another solution that you can actually feel like you own it and possess it if you want. If you're not using blockchain technology, there's a great influencer in the NFT space who I think is brilliant, this punk6529. He's just really smart to follow. And he always says, I'm going to borrow from him, credit him for this. He always says, whose server do you propose to put my digital asset on? It needs to be a public or at least a somewhat public distributed ledger that isn't cancelable by any one government or company. Now, there's an argument about whether or not anything outside of Bitcoin qualifies. And Bitcoin maxis rightfully point out that really there's nothing quite like Bitcoin in that regard. There really isn't. It stands alone. However, my attitude is nothing's perfect in this sense. There's a spectrum of decentralization. And what matters a lot is that you feel like you own it, that at least there's a good faith effort to have the blockchain or the ledger or whatever you want to call it be immutable and uncancelable and transparent and all the things that would go with a true decentralized public blockchain, which is what Bitcoin is. I think it's worth saying outside of Bitcoin, it's a spectrum and it's not perfect. And there's some risks that Ethereum could not be here. What happens if Ethereum's gone in five years? And you know, did you really own that thing? And is that a risk? That's an actual risk. I think it's a pretty low risk at this point, but I don't really know. That's why, by the way, I like free mints and keeping the mint price low and not talking about the speculative nature of these things. I think it's more important to talk about the utility and whatnot. And, you know, by the way, if Ethereum goes away or Polygon goes away, there'll be another blockchain that the corporation could sort of reissue this stuff on if it was really that important. My cynical view is brands I like and brands I don't. And I think that Starbucks has been very impressive to me and Nike with their most recent announcements are extremely impressive because I think that... Part of the Web3 ethos, if there is one, is that social media is taking my data and they're monetizing me and they're selling me. And so if you give that up, that's just an amazingly bold decision, in my opinion, because if I was being the cynic inside Starbucks, I'd be like, well, we built this program and now we have all of our top customers have these collectibles and Dunkin' Donuts just airdrops them. A competitor now can see that precious database of our most loyal fans. I would just feel like there would be a lot of reticence to trying something. So I'm curious, when the big brands are sitting around, what parts of this do they have trepidation about? I think that that's one thing that might cross their mind. And of course, in that example, Duncan's going to add utility then to the Starbucks token holders. Like That's interesting. And then yeah. secondly, they're going to spend money, by the way, to add utility to the Starbucks token holders. That's actually one of the beauties of Web3 is that... Because remember, Duncan all day long can try and target 
Starbucks people on Facebook and Instagram. They do it all day. That's not a new thing. And in this case, they're actually going to be adding utility to their best face. Let's take a step back. Most brands right now are like most people and they don't know or understand what we're even talking about. They don't. They're like, wait a minute, I don't really get really what an NFT is. I don't get how it works. I don't understand how blockchain works. I don't understand how we could do this and have it be understandable and accessible. And it's scary because there's all this crap that goes on every day in this space, in the crypto space, in the Web3 space. There's just a lot of crap. And it's super early. It's super complicated. It doesn't translate very well to most people. And there's all this crap. And to me, that's a brand safety concern that can go on around, do I want to do this? I'm glad you brought the Nike dot swoosh announcement that came out I think yesterday for the most part. And it was like, it's pretty awesome. I think it's so cool what Nike's doing in the space and the way that they are talking about what their platform's gonna do is I think it's just spot on. And I bet there's a lot of fashion CMOs that are waking up this morning going, huh, I probably ought to learn what that is, because that does sound interesting. I oftentimes talk about NFTs or digital collectibles as digital merchandise. In the case of Nike, they talk about it as digital fashion, I think they call it, and digital merchandise. And it literally is in their case. And that's really natural and organic for them to do that. I don't know what they're going to do with this thing. I can't wait to be a customer on it. What Nike's doing with Dot Swoosh, I think what Starbucks is doing with Odyssey, I think what Bobby Hundreds and the Hundreds are doing and how they've entered into the space. There's not hundreds of examples, no pun intended, but there's some really good examples that are going to start to emerge. And I think that brands will educate themselves and get excited about it and then be willing to experiment. I think right now, the biggest trepidation is not even like to the detail of like somebody could do like a vampire attack, like you just described. I don't even think their heads at that space yet. They're like more of like, what is this thing you're talking about? I thought an interesting thing you brought up was how the consumer brand loyalty got stale. I'm curious. I don't know the brand world. Is it like someone takes a risk or like puts their toe out, like Nike's gaining traction, so maybe we'll try it? How do the different brands look at each other from like a mimetic behavior? The brand marketers, we all study what's going on. We all live in our own little bubbles and like brand marketers live in their bubble. What are other people doing? And the good ones, and there's a lot of good ones, they're learning. They're learning and they're staying in this beginner's mindset and they're like trying to see what other people are doing. The one thing I'll say is it always gets overlaid with what's right for our brand. That's a big thing. More than anything else, it usually comes from the top. It's part of the company culture. It's like, what does our brand stand for? What are our leaders or leader comfortable with? And then you sort of look what other people are doing. And then if you're going to experiment or pioneer something or step out, it's usually a combination of, I saw what these other folks are doing. I think that's interesting. I want to do our authentic version of it. Is how it works usually. Coming back to Forum 3, obviously Starbucks and Odyssey is a huge one. What are some of the other exciting projects that your company is working on? We've been focused on Starbucks. I mean, we have two other clients, Ben Mesrick, the author, and Boston Globe, the newspaper company, media company. We've been really heads down focused on Odyssey for the last six months since April. And just now, are we starting to give ourselves the ability to think about 2023 and what is our product going to be? What is our technology going to be? We don't want to just be a consulting firm. We want to be a services firm and a platform both and to help other brands get into the space. And we have a broader long-term vision of how 
if thousands of brands are doing this and doing it well and doing it authentically, then one of the killer apps built into Web3 is the interoperability of the blockchain that you could essentially have one brand that has a tokenized relationship with its customers through its own version of this. And they could do a collab really easily with another brand that has a tokenized relationship. Essentially, that collaboration could be really quick and easy and fun and not require a big tech lift and could actually be a way to add utility to both brands. Forum 3 is focused on things like how do we create a platform to both onboard more brands easily and their consumers into the space that they can do something like this, but also how can brands work with one another and how do we ultimately translate that into a consumer experience that is interoperable and multi-brand in its feeling. But you know, one step at a time, we'll probably take on a few more clients as we go into the new year and start building our platform. So stay tuned. I know in the past we talked about it and it could be a hypothetical, but can you give one of your examples of the power of collaboration, what that might actually look like for the end customer? A really good example would be, imagine there's a fast casual restaurant chain in the city you live in that you like to go to a pizza place or whatever. And they basically have a loyalty program, but they decide to go ahead and start to create an additional layer on their loyalty program, which allows their version of an Odyssey type thing. So now they've got some subset of super fans that are loyalty members that are tokenized. Let's say that they do a collaboration with a major sports team in their region or one of the regions that also tokenizes their relationship with their brands. And now you've got, instead of having a collaboration be just a sponsorship between the fast casual restaurant chain and the sports chain, where it's like advertising at the ballpark or whatever, what if it was like, hey, you can get this limited edition experience and merch that's co-branded between the fast casual company and the sports team, for example. This is the point. If I'm in the Venn diagram, meaning I am a super fan of these two things. I love sports and food, so I'm clearly showing my colors. But it's true. If my favorite restaurant chain and my favorite sports team got together to do anything, I would be like, I have to have that. And if it was like a digital collectible with utility that let me buy some exclusive merch and also... It could be like, I've got this token proof thing or whatever that I use. It lets me into this like cool area of the ballpark. And I've also got this cool thing that lets me get this token gated exclusive merch that I can get that's got both brands on it. That's what I mean. Like in that example, that is really interesting. I did it because I held a token from both places or one of the places. And then I basically got this collab token. Awesome. Adam, I really appreciate your time today. We end these podcasts with the same question. What are you most excited, which I think I know the answer to, build over the next six months? And what are you most excited to see built over the next six years? I'm really excited to see what happens with Odyssey right over the next six months. And that's a cliche thing to say, but I really am because I also feel like that just as importantly, or maybe more, I really want to see what happens with Form 3 and what we can build in all of us the whole industry, including Form 3, ironically, we're going to learn from what happens with Odyssey and Nike and others. And it's going to be like an amazing next six months. Kudos to Polygon. They've got a lot of good things going on at Polygon. There's going to be a lot of good examples of these things to like watch in the blockchain space with brands. In the next six years, I'm really excited to see what kind of a consumer experience can be built across brands in a way that's never been built before. What kind of gamified, multi-brand, almost universal loyalty platform could emerge on the back of this kind of 
new way for brands to be engaging. I don't think we've ever seen anything like it because there's always been these universal loyalty program things that have been tried and don't work. And I actually think that Web3 could be an enabler to something that's really special in that regard. And I think it'll be super gamified and fun. Awesome, Adam. It's a great place to stop. I always learn when we catch up. Thank you for the time today. You're welcome. Thanks, Eric. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 